Welcome, everyone. This is Mia Ferroletto, publisher of New Observations Magazine. Welcome to our show. Today, I have the honor and the the fun of doing a two-hour talk with my colleague on Dreamland, Mike Clellan. Hello, Mike. Hello. Thank you. And interestingly enough, the two of us have similar backgrounds in terms of spiritual and psychic experiences, as well as a background in the art world. So the overlaps are pretty pronounced, and we thought it would be great fun to share our lives with you in in this particular way. So welcome, welcome to the show. It's an interesting time for all of us to be sequestered and have the opportunity to go within in a much more pronounced way than we do in our daily lives. And hopefully um, we'll be able to give you a fairly clear uh, overview of our individual lives and how we've come to this place um, and, and come to the commitment of doing a show, a weekly show, bringing people together to share ideas and experiences. Um, so here we are. Mike, how is your uh, time being sequestered in the Lake Placid area of New York State? It must be beautiful with spring. Well, it, it doesn't it doesn't seem like spring right now. I, I think we're about the same uh, latitude. I, the, I woke up to snow this morning, uh, which is not un, not at all unusual for April around here. But uh, it's not much. I'm sure it'll melt off before the the day is up. But uh, there's a there's an inch or so out the door. Uh, you know, it's the town I live in is so far north of New York that there's almost no. I, I guess there's no f- issues of being fearful here. Uh, everyone, the schools are closed and people are being very prudent at the grocery store and such. Uh, as far as, you know, I just the last couple times I went to the grocery store, it was nobody where I was wearing masks. And this last time everyone was wearing masks. So I get the sense that, you know, everyone recognizes that we're we're not in the, the epicenter of it right here. I mean, we're, New York State has the highest number of cases, but that's all related to New York City mostly, which is a long way south from where I am right here. So, so it's been remarkably calm and and there's no sense of drama or fear associated with this here which has been rather peaceful so you know my concern is how long this will take to play out and uh and you know, get a little stir crazy in the house and such but i have a beautiful uh area just around me so just going for walks has been easy and lovely um spring is in the air uh, except for today <laughs> it seems a little more wintry so it's been just as far as the you know what we have needed to do here has been fine. We, uh, my partner Andrea and I, run a small inn here uh, in upstate New York, and that has certainly taken. We have we've obviously had to close that down completely. We only have a few rooms, and it's mostly during the summer. And April is a time where we do not get many bookings. So it's obviously changed things, but um, you know we're taking a hit financially, but. There's not too much difference than the than than a traditional April up here. Uh, once summertime comes, that's where we depend on people coming to visit. 
Well, I'm in Vermont um, in a very similar situation to yours. It's very peaceful. People are, you know, calm and and uh, complying to the protocols that Governor Phil Scott has put into place. And last night I participated in a phone call with Bernie Sanders and Patrick Leahy and Governor Scott and Congressman Peter Welsh and um, some experts in, in the unemployment and medical fields within the state of Vermont and everyone answered questions. It was very well done and I think people appreciated it a great deal. But for the most part, um, aside from the fact that, you know, approximately 600 people in Vermont have had the virus and we have had 23 deaths, uh, all of that has kind of stabilized and um, looking good uh, in terms of um, the isolation, the imposed staying at home has kind of curtailed what could have happened. Um, I lived in Manhattan for 18 years and seeing all the pictures on the New York Times and other websites and speaking to friends who are still living there uh, is difficult. It's so uh, surreal to see the streets of New York completely empty and hearing, you know, the challenges that my friends and and associates are dealing with in the city. I'm so grateful to be in such a beautiful, peaceful place. And and I lived in New York City for 10 years, uh, between 1981 and 1991. And, um, yeah, and I, it's just, it's surreal. And, uh, you know, but there was these times when I would get up really early in the morning on a Sunday and just kind of walk the city in that quiet time. And there's an eerie beauty to that city in those moments of quietness. But I will tell you, even on the quietest Sunday morning, there's still people out in cars driving and such. Yeah, the city never sleeps. Exactly, exactly. Until now. Now it's really shut down. Um, curious to know, when, while you were living in New York City, did you have any UFO uh, sightings or extreme psychic experiences? I had, um, I certainly had some, a few f curious psychic things uh, or powerful synchronicities, let's say. And uh, I guess there was one event that happened, this would have been in 1992, I was back for the summer. Um, I was sort of between jobs and I was about to move out west and stuff like that. So I came back and lived with my old, wasn't my college roommate, but an old friend from college in his apartment down in Greenwich Village for the summer. And I just took on some advertising work to try to make some money. But I did have a curious synchronicity that point that certainly had to do with the contact experience, I guess. You want to hear it? I can tell it. Yeah, I'd love to hear about it. So I, I don't know if I've ever told this on, on the line here. I was um, uh, living on 2nd Street in the East Village, and I was actually a rock climber. I was doing a lot of rock climbing at the time. I haven't done much in the last few years, but at the time I was very, very dedicated to rock climbing. There's a spot where a very famous spot for rock climbing just north of the city in a town called New Paltz, and it's about a 90-minute drive. And I used to sleep out there a lot at night. There's a spot that I had, and it was off in the woods, and it was 
at what amounted to the top of the cliff system. Now, it's not like I was like a tiny little cliff I was sleeping on. It was like a huge, beautiful, giant expanse of this wonderful white rock that I would sleep on. And I and I learned to really like it. In the summertime, I would just go up there with a sleeping bag and a pad, and I would sleep out under the stars. And then the next morning, I would find a partner and meet up with friends and go rock climbing for the day. So there was a point in, um, I guess it would have been 1993, and I was living at the house in, at, or the apartment, and I just felt it all day long. Like, I got to go. I got to get up there. I got to be there. I got to be there. I got to be there. And at about 11.30 at night, which is the only time I've ever done this, at 11.30 at night, I was like, I, I got to go. I got to go up there and sleep under the stars. And so I got in my car, and this is a, I think it was a Friday night, which is kind of a zoo in, in the village. It's a, you know, it's like, like living in the Mardi Gras every night of the year in a way. So I got in the car and started driving north. It's about a 90-minute drive. And as I was, and there's traffic, at, even late at night, 1130 at night in, in New York City. So I was kind of stuck in traffic on the FDR. And I said to myself, like, oh, God, they're really pushing hard tonight. And that that came out of my mouth. And I was very well-versed with the UFO literature. Like, I'd read a lot. And I had had some stuff in my youth. But I was denying all of it. And when that came out of my mouth, I was like, wow, what did where did that come from? So I went and slept out under the stars in, uh, I you know, finished the drive. I parked the car. I carried my stuff off into the woods. This simple little trail. I just hiked with headlamp and slept on this big, flat expanse of rock. Now, there's, it's interesting. The rock is really lumpy. But there's one spot I found. And it was in this beautiful spot. And it was uh, just, just flat enough in this one spot that I could lay my pad down. So that's about six foot by two foot. And... So I laid the pad down and I slept and I had, I slept wonderful. Nothing happened that I know of. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then years later, Whitley Streeper put a little thing on his blog and he, he mentioned the Mohonk preserve where, where this, where the climbing is. It's a private preserve just, uh, outside of New Paltz, New York. And he said, oh, this was very near my cabin. It was probably 2011 or 12 when I read this. And I was like, wait a minute. He had mentioned that he would lived near the town of Accord and I did a little, look and googling and found out and so anyway i realized that i was about a mile and a half to two miles away from his cabin and he would have been i think he was living there in 93 so that was sort of odd to be so close and have that and then years later probably in the early 2000s i went back to the to the spot and I was climbing there with some friends, visiting New York City. I had been living out west in Idaho. And I went back to the spot and I said, I'm going to try to find my sleeping spot. Like I'm, it's, I, and, I, and I was like, I wonder if I can even find it. it was, so I, I just walked right to it. I found it right away, instantly. It's exactly the spot. It was a huge expanse of milky white rock, full daylight. And someone had spray painted a pentagram on the spot where I had slept, which I thought was a very odd little detail so for me this is this is how this stuff is welling up for me this it's welling up with these subtle synchronicities and this very eerie i guess i don't want to i almost want to say like low level confirmation this was well before i had i had actually believed that these things were possible in my life i was very much in a state of denial so that was very troubling for me all the aspects of that, especially that voice where I said, boy, they are pushing hard tonight as I was driving north on the FDR.
yeah, you you definitely understood that you were getting a message from elsewhere. I did not want to understand it though. I wanted to I wanted to slam the door <laughs> shut on that and not deal with it. So uh, that eventually came to a screeching halt that that ability to to say no, it can't be real. So Hey, I just looked at the clock and this this is probably a good time to take our first break. For non-members, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on new observations, and we are going to continue with the conversation that we had just before the break. Here goes. I remember um, in my 20s having my uh, natal chart done for the first time, and the astrologer said to me, you're very mediumistic. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't pick up anything kind of, you know, denial um, because the whole idea of being a medium was not anything that I was interested in even thinking about. But of, co of course, the, you know, my ability to pick up information is one of the main characteristics of, of who I am at this point. So it's, it's funny. Um, you know, the ideas, the, the concepts that we have of ourselves, which of ourselves, which are proven right or wrong uh, at various stages in our lives. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think what Whitley has done with his, with his work and, um, bringing people together, forming this community of people who are sharing information with each other is just a huge contribution. Uh, and uh, I know you are too, but I'm very grateful to him for this opportunity. And I am too. And I am also just, I'm just, I'll do a little plug here for the site itself. The archives in this site are remarkable. I was listening back when it was called Whitley's World and he had this little super low-grade CGI spinning globe. I don't know how many people can remember that, but that was right at the dawn of his website and right at the dawn of, like, before the internet era really took off. And I, I just was, like, astonished that I could get online and listen to these archived interviews back then, right? So, I mean, before it was like you had to, you had to set your clock and stay up late to listen to Coast to Coast on the AM radio. You know, there was no way to really record it in any kind of meaningful way. And um, the volume of powerful interviews in the archives on this site is just remarkable just remarkable so that alone for me is the is worth the, the whatever the small fee is for the membership here so i don't want it to sound too much like i'm plugging it but i am plugging it so oh yeah i think anyone who's listening should become a member to the site and and support what Whitley's doing it's we are on the brink of so much information coming out into the forefront that's been kept quiet, you know, for eons. And as a resource, this work cannot be beat. It's just so vast and covers, you know, everything from Catherine Austin Fitz and the secret government and all the money that's gone missing to research by Linda Moulton Howe and others. It's, it's just a remarkable resource. As well as like the first person experience. That's what I'm, I'm much more interested in. You know, like I feel like I have very little control over what, what happens at the grand level of the secret keepers, but I certainly 
feel like I have a, a lot of control talking to people one-on-one -on -one about their own experiences or listening to a conversation about people with their own experiences. Uh, Ann Strieber ran the contactee interviews for a few years here. Actually, this is a, I was the very first contactee interview on that show, uh, that series. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that happened because I met, uh, and I sat with Ann and talked with her for a while at, uh, a conference that was back in 2009 in uh, Joshua Tree, California, at this wonderful, uh, I think it was called the Joshua Tree Retreat Center. It was uh, built by Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, and it just was this amazing center off in the desert, and and it was old. I mean, it must have, all the buildings there must have been about 60 years old, and they just looked like they were all kind of bleary from 60 years of the desert sun, but it had the coolest vibe to it, that place. Just a, just a remarkable place to run a, a conference like this. That was one of his Dreamland conferences. And when I spoke with Anne, she said, I, she got back to me later and said, I want to do a talk with you. And so, yeah, that was the first one. So what was your first contactee experience? Do you have a specific one that, you know, stands out? Yeah, well, two things happened in 1974. Uh, and I would have been 12 years old. I'm 57 now. So 1974, I would have been a 12-year-old boy living in Southfield, Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit. Interestingly, my high school was the rival high school to, to William Henry's high school, which was about a mile away. So I spoke with William Henry a little bit, and we grew up about two miles away. Um, our high schools were both on the same road. They were on Evergreen Road, and they were about a mile apart. So that, I just thought that was a curious detail. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, I was at a sleepover at my friend's house when I was 12, and we both drew. I'm an illustrator, and he, we would draw, and that was part of our friendship that we would draw. And I remember that day we had paper and pencils on the kitchen table and like a little shoebox full of, you know, pens and colored pencils probably. And we were looking out the window, or I can't remember who it was. We were in his room, and I remember we had just walked into the room, and it was dark. Like we hadn't quite flipped the light switch on in his room. It was nighttime on a weekend. And I remember, I don't know if it was him or me, said, well, look, look, look. And out the window, there was this shape. There was this coffee can shaped craft, very clear in the night sky. Like it wasn't like a little dot way off in the distance. This was very clear. We both pushed our noses right up against the glass. So given that, it was certainly was not something reflected behind us. You know, we would have obscured it because our faces were right up against the glass. And it was moving in this extremely strange way. The motion itself was like too slow or too controlled. It didn't, it did not have, it did not look like a, you know, like an airplane flies, right? There's an engine that pushes it one direction and the wings hold it up in the air and it flies. And a helicopter has a propeller that, that keeps it aloft. And a balloons and things like that have kind of a, a vibe to them that I could recognize. This was absolutely I, like I went through the checklist, it's not a plane, it's not a helicopter, it's not a balloon. It's it's, and I and I literally remember like the hair kind of standing up on the back of my neck. Like this is this is alien. This is not, I mean it's alien in the in the kind of Webster's definition of you know something absolutely unknown. And we watched it for maybe thirty seconds. It was descending at this very eerie way, like at, at an angle that did not seem like a, any kind of angle that a plane would fly at or a balloon or, and then just. All of a sudden, click, it was gone. Just boom, vanished. And I never said that. It's like I would always tell the story as a boy. I would say, well, the lights turned off and we could no longer see it. And I knew I was lying when I told that as a little boy afterwards. 
and and it vanished. And I and I I say that now because I've read so many reports of things vanishing. I feel like I have permission to say it, but I did not feel like I had permission as a twelve year old boy to say something so absurd. I basically said the lights went out, we couldn't see it, but that was a lie. Now that I we both ran downstairs. I said I think I said let's draw it. Let's let's not talk about it. Let's draw it. And we ran downstairs and we sat at the kitchen table and we drew it. And and I still have my illustration. I remember. The, between the two illustrations, they were close to identical, but I draw it as a, like a true coffee can shape. And then my friend Kenny, he said, no, no, it was a little, there was a little bevel on the edges of the coffee can. You know, at the top and bottom, it was a little 45 degree bevel. And he was, he was right. And I, and you can see on my drawing where I actually kind of erased it and, and corrected it. And I remember that conversation. So that happened uh, as a 12 year old boy in that same year, which is 1974. I was walking home from a high school football game, and I apologize if people have heard this story before, but uh, this was a big deal for me. And it was with a friend. His name was also Mike, and we were walking through the neighborhood. And now I I knew what time we left the, the football game because I wanted to be home in time to see a television show that was on at 9 o'clock, excuse me, at 10 o'clock on Friday nights, and it was Cole Shack, the Night Stalker. I was a 12-year-old boy. This was the perfect oh, show. Oh, I love for... that show. <laughs> Darren McGavin. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and it's always it's aliens and zombies and, and vampires. And it was a, it was like the predecessor to the X-Files. Right. So, you know, like I, I wanted to, I was not going to miss that show. So I, we get to the spot in the neighborhood and I could put an X on the right on the sidewalk. I know to the millimeter where it happened. And there was this like weird orange flash in the sky. And it felt like God took a light switch and flipped everything orange on just click off so it was just calm night sky in michigan click orange click back to the night sky and it was this weird rich like it wasn't like kind of a subtle orange it was like the the color of a you know when the coals in a, in a campfire die down mm -hmm. they have that rich rich self-illuminating orange color it was like the whole sky was like that rich powerful orange color and then goop gone and I was, both of us were like, what just happened? And we did the little checklist. We like, was it a lightning? No, it didn't. I've never seen lightning like that. Was it an explosion like off over the horizon where we would have heard a noise? It was totally silent. Was it like, we actually even thought did like a, like wires on a telephone pole, like zap and create a flash, but it didn't match that at all. And then, so we got to my house and I said goodbye to my friend and he walked, his house was where he lived, it was a further into the neighborhood. And I walked in the door and my parents were, right there waiting for me and they were angry like where have you been what are you doing out so late I'm like it's not late i told you i'd be home at 9 30 it's 9 30 and they pointed to the television set and the 11 o'clock news was ending which put it at about 11 30 wow and i was it did not make any sense at all to me this is way before the term missing time had come into the vernacular and i was just like 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 don't get mad at me i didn't do anything wrong like i don't know why it's 11 30 i came home like and they were mad at me and they like i don't like it was so it was hard like emotionally my parents were angry at me and 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 on top of that i missed this cool tv show that i really wanted to watch now uh the next monday in school my friend mike i think we're, i picture us at the, at the cafeteria and I, I remember this conversation and and i said you know a bunch of our friends all sitting around there 12 year old boys and i'm like you know something weird happened friday night when we were walking home from the football game and my friend mike said yeah we saw a ufo with lights and everything and i was like i, I it's fantastic that in both of your cases, you had a, a, a witness, you had a, a fellow experiencer. Well, I've gotten in touch with both of them. 
and Kenny, uh, I don't want to say too much about his private life, but he's suffering from some health issues. And he basically said, you know, like, I can't remember. My health has been terrible and my memory's shot. And then he got back to me and he talked to his mom. And he said, my mom remembers the night we came downstairs and drew it at the kitchen table. She remembers that. But, but he had no memory at all of it. And then I asked my friend Mike just this last summer. Like, that was like 40 years later or something. So, uh, so I asked my friend Mike, did, did you remember seeing it? And, and he said, um, no, I don't have any memory at all of it. But I do remember you got in trouble for coming home late. I do remember that. Which is, a, which is an odd detail because both of those, again, there's this like soft confirmation, right? It's hard to, it's hard to declare what might have happened given their memories. But those are confirming to me that he remembered I was got in trouble and that my other friend, Kenny, his mom remembered we were drawing at the kitchen table, drawing a UFO that we had just seen. Well, and you still have your, your drawing. And I still have the drawing, yeah. It, so you, you have a representation of what you actually saw as well, which is great. Now here, let's just, I, just to tell the story completely, um, I, re, I had always had the two memories of the night in walking home from the football game. I remember I had walked home from the football game and saw an orange flash. And then over the years, I, I it felt like it was a different football game when I came home with the missing time. And somehow I had just kept these two things separate in my mind. I mean, I sometime in my late 20s, I started compulsively reading UFO books. Um, and that has continued to this day. Uh, so on the very first episode of when I, I rented the very first episode in VHS at the little gas station, actually, it was at the gas station in my small town. They had a little video rental place and I could rent the very first episode of the X-Files. And at the end, they had a like a little bonus feature there. And it was like, and now an interview with the X-Files creator, Chris Carter. And he's sitting there in his little director chair. And it's a little stagey thing, but he talks about the, the genesis of the show. And pretty much the first thing he says is, I wanted to create a show that matched my favorite show as a little kid. And that show was Shack the Night Stalker. And when he said that, like these two memories just like, bam, cemented together. And I realized like, oh my word, that, that was the same night. That was the same night. The missing time and the orange flash in the sky. My friend Mike said he saw a UFO, but all I remember is an orange flash in the sky. That was the same night. And it scared me. This would have probably been in about 1990 seven or something like that. And it scared me. And I remember walking around my little cabin in Idaho, like a caged wild animal. Like I was just pacing, pacing, pacing the house. It scared me to have those two memories come together. And in the intervening years, there have been so many powerful synchronicities related to me trying to uncover that story and tell that story that I have to trust that the orange flash and the missing time happened the very same night, though I didn't fit those two puzzle pieces together until around 1997 or so. So in going back to that time or the, the ensuing years, you, you had a, an association of fear in terms of reviewing this or uh, a reluctance to, to review this. Not so much fear, I mean, yes, the fear would have been like, like fear of being made fun of or something like that. So, uh -huh. was, and I've had some scary experiences, not many, one in particular, but, uh, so that was, that was, uh, it was more just denial. Like I did not want to go there. 
interesting. Yeah, I did not want to. I did not want to. I mean, I was reading UFO literature. Like, I knew exactly what it meant. Like, I read Communion. I'd read all about Hopkins books. I knew just what it meant to be, you know, I knew what a UFO abductee was, what was supposed to be, given what I had read. And I did not want to, I did not want to put myself in that category. I did not, I, I was, I was saying, like, I knew the implications of the missing time and the, and the sighting, and I did not want to treat it literally. So. Yeah, well, the early 90s, 30 years ago, things were very different at that time. And I remember when I first started talking about UFOs and ETs and visitations and all of that, the people around me were scared. I mean, I was not scared because for me, the experiences had been extremely positive, but the the people around me um, were concerned that, you know, I was losing it in some way. Um, but, you know, my background um, is one of, you know, countless mystical experiences from the time I was a very small child and uh, pronounced psychic abilities, knowing what was going to happen in advance. And I would say to my parents, oh, aunt so-and-so is going to do such and such like a week before it would happen, or we'd watch a news story and I'd say, you know, the outcome is going to be blah, blah, blah. And sure enough, you know, within a week or 10 days, whatever came out of me would, would have transpired. And, um, I had an amazing ability from the time I was very small to manifest things, to, you know, have a thought and bring it into reality or manifest of something physical, which has been a, a lifelong characteristic of of things that have happened around me. Oh, 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 I would love to hear some examples. But first, I think we should take our second break for free listeners you will hear some commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on new observations. And just before the break, I was about to ask Mia for a few examples. So I'll do that now. Mia, I would love to hear some examples of what you were talking about before these, these experiences. Well, uh, freshman year of college, uh, we were standing in line for the lottery to register and I said, I want number one because, you know, I would be the first person then to be able to choose my classes. And I pulled my number one right out of the, you know, box of numbers of over, I don't know, about 250 students. I can be in a store, for instance, and uh, one day I was I was in a gift shop and I was admiring you know, the, the yellow rubber duckies that it, lots of people have floating in their bathtubs. And there was a larger one, and I it just made me smile. And later on that day, I was at another store, maybe a half an hour away, and I came out from the store, and sitting by the driver's side door was a yellow rubber ducky just waiting there for me. Um my favorite story is my diamond earring story. Um, this one particular week, I was selling my house in upstate New York. And throughout the week, I had seen three different women wearing different size bezel set diamond earrings. 
And the woman with the largest diamonds was married to a doctor. They had come and were looking at my house to possibly purchase. And I jokingly said to my realtor, I need a doctor husband so I can have bezel set diamond earrings. And a few days later, I was cleaning my closet and the people I had bought my house from, the husband was an architect and he had built this shoe rack all around the interior of the master closet. And I was lifting the shelves and cleaning underneath. And there was a little shriveled dead mouse, uh, some dust bunnies and a jewelry box lying there under the shelf. And I opened the box and there were bezel set diamond earrings in the box But what was so interesting is that each earring had three different sized bezel set diamonds, all similar to what I had seen the week before, different women wearing. So um, I got my, my diamond earrings and I had them broken down into three different pairs and I gave them all away as gifts. So it, these are just some examples. Um, I had a massive limb on my property that blocked the view to the pond. And I was thinking of having that limb removed. I woke up the next morning and the limb was lying on the ground. And this is just a thought. You never, you never spoke it aloud. Well, I have done the speaking aloud thing too. I went through a whole phase where I learned First of all, I saw the energy come off the page from the words that I had written. I actually saw the energy come up into the ethers. But I learned living with my six dogs. I lived with a pack of six large dogs, all rescues for many years. Most of them lived to be 14. And one particular day, they were digging in the dirt and eating worms and I jokingly said aloud, my dogs are eating worms. And the next day I opened a brand new bag of 40 pound bag of dog food and it was full of worms. <laughs> and then I, I started to really focus on the spoken word and the power of the spoken word, but quite literally just a fleeting thought. I mean, that's the interesting thing to me that you know, part of what I want to do is share my experiences in a, in a simple way, because it actually is very simple, so that people can learn to, you know, develop these things within themselves. If there's one mission that I have, it would be that. And I think in general, people make things far more complicated than they need to be. It's actually pretty simple. You just need a clear expression, a clear thought clear intention. So, um, and, and this is just the stories you're telling are exactly the kind of thing I, I find that I'm drawn to in my research, these kind of very subtle outlying synchronistic or, or I almost, you know, magical events that, that to me imply so much. I think these happen to a lot of people often and they're wary to trust them. And I think by, denying them, I think they get shut down sometimes. And then by by cultivating them, which I feel like I've done with synchronicity to some degree, uh, like really powerful magical events can unfold. Oh, on a huge, on a huge scale. I mean, I was meditating one day on Jesus healing the blind 
and putting it out to the universe um, as I often broadcast energy. And the next day I turned on my computer and the very first story that came up was of a blind man in New Jersey who was spontaneously healed. Um, I, I think, I think we, you know, this is who we really are. This is our birthright. These, these are all aspects of our spiritual and divine nature. And because I was born this way and, you know, communicated with animals from the time I was a very small child, just had access to other realms. Um, my mother taught school the day she had me and went back to teaching school two weeks later because she was the main source of support for our family. My father was in medical school up at UVM. So I was alone. You know, I didn't have parents around me for the majority of each and every day. And I truly connected psychically to other realms from that time. Um, and, and I do believe that I came in that way. But then at 19, I was tested at Columbia University for right and left brain hemisphere activity. And I was told that out of anyone they tested, my brain was the most balanced. And I do process information on both sides of, of my brain at the same time. So I think because of that, I walk this middle path um, And, you know, these synchronicities and many other things are so integrated in my daily life that I just move, you know, in and out of these spaces, these conscious and unconscious spaces all the time. This is fascinating. Yeah. I mean, this is these these more subtle events that I mean, like I'm almost at a point now where like like I. I mean, I'm writing books about UFOs, and I, I don't really care about the UFO part, right? Like, I don't really care about, like, the sighting itself. I mean, obviously I do, but that has been covered a lot in other people's work. And and there's this there's this other stuff that's going on, let's say, below the waterline. Or, or like, I, I don't want to be hypnotized by the UFO to the detriment of ignoring these very subtle and oftentimes very beautiful experiences that can take place in the shadow of the UFO, if that makes sense. Well, the UFO piece of it for me is just one small part of it. Um, the angelic realm, the animal realm, the divic realm, the, you know, the mineral, uh, these are all worlds that we're interacting with and working with, you know, every day, every minute. And um, the UFOs and the ET piece of it is just one part of it. Oh, that's interesting. The way I frame it is that, like, you know, the story, the the UFO story will only take you so far. Like, to really get drawn into the story, it's these subtler plot points that just, just, they just slay me that I just I'm really drawn to them. And that's what I've been archiving. So, yes, I mean, obviously, I've I've got my own issues with owls, you know, just being completely dragged down that corridor. But the uh, the the story itself and oftentimes a story is like a parable, right? It doesn't doesn't have to have it doesn't have to be punctuated with a conclusion the way a detective novel is. But you can certainly on a subconscious level glean so much from a powerful, from an experience 
or a long list of experiences that that people have endured or gone through or you know have helped transform them in some way and that's what i'm i'm certainly tied very much into the natural world and very much into the into the realm of birds especially owls and in totem animals and things like that and in mythology but um the only way that feels appropriate to to tell all that is to tell it through story. Well, that's there's a long tradition of that, right? I mean, absolutely. Man is a storyteller, so it makes makes sense that you would go that route. I use the term campfire story a lot because that's a perfect analogy in a way. Because in a campfire story, doesn't have to have a punchline the way a, a like a like a novel does, you know. A campfire story doesn't need to make sense. A, a novel does need to make sense, right? And I and I worry that the that the nuts and bolts half of the of the research community is trying to make sense of this with a tidy conclusion, with a summation, with an answer. And I I feel like we're never going to get that true answer. We're always going to be confronted with with more and more questions and. Uh, and I just think that's that's the reality of where we are in this 3D realm. Some people can access other realms, but it's fleeting. And and oftentimes, if people someone says they have an answer, boy, I'm very shy to trust what they say because the next person also has an answer, and it's completely different. Well, my sense is this virus is going to help um, people connect to inner dimensions within themselves and. I believe that that's a very big part of why all of this is happening and the heart-centered link to each other and the way compassion is spreading as a result of this is is making a, a big difference. Um, we experienced this after 9-1-1 until the 1st of, of 2002. Americans were very heart-centered at that time and thinking of others, but we were not able to sustain it moving into the new year. It all kind of dissipated after that. But this is much more up close and personal because every state is participating in this. And, um, and every place in the world, too. Exactly. Exactly. But we're, you know, our country specifically is fairly materialistic, you know, to the extreme, I would say. And that that has to change. We're, you know, 3D materialism is fine, but we are spiritual beings living a physical experience, which is very different. Well, time will tell. I mean, this is this is going to be archived and, you know, who knows how this will sound, you know, listening to it a year later or a few years later. Um, but, you know, I hope that we can rise above the the pettiness that sort of defines so much of the American experience in a way, or, you know, that's what I see so much in, in the modern American experience and, you know, the divisiveness of, of, of the, the elections, it's gotten so ugly. And so my hope is somehow that ugliness, I would love it to disappear completely, but I would certainly hope it tones down a lot after this. And, and we may be confronted as a, as a global community with a, with a brutal chapter of of economic depression, and that is going to be a challenge. But it's, I mean, we've overcome all kinds of challenges as people throughout throughout our 
time on this globe? Well, having lived through phases of my life where I've had unlimited checking and then phases of my life where I've counted every every nickel, I can say for certain that the universe provides. Never once have I been without what I've needed at any given moment in time. And as as Kierkegaard's, you know, said, God takes care of the birds of the air. You know, why would that not be true for us? And that's a huge lesson that we all have to open our ourselves up to because it's a universal truth. Um, abundance is there for everyone. We have participated in hoarding for far too long and we have to change the way we look at things. Um, for the past several years, I've been living off of my social security. I took my social security early and it has been the most freeing experience of my life. My basic bills are covered. I publish new observations magazine. I organize conferences. Uh, I'm opening an artist in residency program. I do the work that I love to do and don't worry about getting a paycheck from it. Just continue doing it no matter what. And it's completely transformed the way I do everything and um, provided an enormous amount of freedom in terms of personal self-expression. Yeah, and I have certainly lived this out-of-the-box lifestyle where, you know, I was teaching mountain skills. I was teaching backpacking and mountaineering and skiing and stuff like that in, out west for, for 25 years. And... I mean, there's there's such low pay in that. It's laughable. And I was also doing some illustration work, but I was, oh my God, I lived this glorious life outdoors and in a beautiful spot. And so I feel so blessed that I, that I you know, that, I mean, the term is a ski bum, right? I lived the ski bum experience for 25 years. It was a joy. That's great. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, with people like Andrew Yang and his universal basic income and other ideas that we're exploring right now, I think a lot of um, a lot will change about our our daily uh, financial support, and it it already is. And interestingly enough, what I see happening is because of the rise in consciousness, the world is has become much more open to this, and you know, taking care of each other, supporting help to those who need it is happening more and more with the virus in a way that perhaps 20 years ago would not have been the case. I, you know, so I can't, I, I'd be hard to know. I mean, so what's happened now in 20 years ago, this virus would have been a lot worse without the social networking, without this tool. I mean, you and I are talking over this tool, the internet, that tool didn't exist in any meaningful way 20 years ago. And just getting the word out, you know, basically everyone on the, not everyone on the planet, but a great majority of the planet has chosen just, I'm going to stay indoors to some degree because it'll benefit my fellow humans. We have a, we have a template in place, which is the events of 1919 or 1918, I guess. And the pandemic then, which I did a little math the other day that killed between two and 3% of the population of the planet. We're not going to see anything to that degree with this issue now. I mean, it's going to be a bump for sure, but it's a very small bump in the road compared to what happened 102 years ago. 
and it's heartening to me that everyone just kind of understood that our fellow man is dependent on us not to spread this disease around. And we have chosen collectively without not too much difficulty to, you know, stay indoors. I don't think that it's all this stuff about the crushing police state that's going to come out of this. I think that's a that's fear mongering. I think it's this has been a I don't know, just like a neighborly thing that it seems like the world is doing. I agree. Yeah. And we're all going to take a hit financially. And I mean, I'm certain there are people out there scared and unemployed and that have lost their job and are. And I recognize that there's hardship intertwined with this. But hopefully, hopefully, collectively, as a country, as a planet, we can, you know, lift our neighbors up. That opportunity is there for sure. And that's extraordinary. Yes. And there's also the opportunity where it could just, you know, flip flop and, and the, the worst part of human nature could arise from it. But I'm, I just, I, I just need to be optimistic. It just, it just, it's in my bones. It wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to face myself in the mirror if I wasn't optimistic. And I, I don't want to say unrealistically optimistic, but I mean, I think that optimism hopefully is infectious and I know other people out there feel it too. Oh yeah. I, I definitely am optimistic about the outcome of, of all of this. I, I think, um, spiritual people have been preparing for this day for decades, you know, knowing something was going to come. Um, I don't think a virus was a thing that we, you know, we were anticipating, but nevertheless, we've been surprised with a virus. And I think that um, it's a great opportunity for all of us to move into another place, a better place a more positive place for everyone on the planet. Agreed. Agreed. So, um, my first UFO experience was, um, groundbreaking for me. And also, um, what I would consider to be extremely positive. I, it, it connected me or made me realize my connection to all of the universe in a, in a very specific way. Um, I had driven, uh, from Columbia County, New York, near Albany over to Needham, Massachusetts to spend the day with a psychiatrist and ophthalmologist named Lee Sinella, who died in his mid nineties, but he was a Kundalini master and did extraordinary research uh, as a psychiatrist for people who were having spontaneous Kundalini experiences and, and introducing them to meditation had a, a very beneficial impact on their spiritual development. And we had become friends and correspondents and he was, he lived in California, but was visiting his sister in Needham, Massachusetts. And I drove over to spend the day with him and had one of the most profound conversations of my life at the time. This was in 1999 and we spent the day talking about free energy and uh, his group of friends. We got to know all of the key movers and shakers in the new age movement in the 1960s. Uh, Robert Monroe with the Monroe Institute, Peter and Eileen Cady with Finhorn, 
Russell Tower with remote viewing, Ingo Swan, again, remote viewing, just all kinds of people. And I had never had that kind of a conversation with someone who was so advanced um, spiritually and so grounded in terms of psychiatric medicine. And interestingly enough, when I finished graduate school, my first job in New York was I was the administrator for the third year clerkship in psychiatry at NYU Medical Center. And my office was in the old Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital um, when Mark David Chapman killed John Lennon. He was right down the hall from my office in the forensic ward. And I also was the administrator for the first year behavioral science course, which introduced medical students in 1979 to the holistic implications of healing. That was the first time that Western medicine had really started to take a look at all of these other aspects of uh, health and wellness versus illness. So I went to psychiatric grand rounds every week and um, my boss was the associate dean of NYU Medical Center, Viva Zimmerman, and a psychiatrist. And we used to talk extensively about psychic abilities. And she shared with me information on the research that Duke University was doing in these areas. So I always was looking both philosophically and from the standpoint of religion, reading extensively and also reading extensively in the areas of psychiatry and psychology, which really helped to ground me as I experienced my own events in, in my daily life that many people would perhaps, you know, not be able to handle quite so well. But um, I left Lee this particular day, and after having had a conversation with him about free energy, I decided uh, driving back for several hours to my home that I would experiment on bringing energy in through my crown chakra and running my car on my own energy versus fuel. And I did get home on half the amount of gas that I used to get to Needham. And that night, I woke up at three o'clock in the morning and was just lying in bed looking out the window when this massive close encounter ship just silently glided by my bedroom window and there were gaseous vapors in front of it and behind it and it was completely soundless and there were lights coming from inside and it just moved um, from left to right. And the next day, I had black army helicopters flying over my house. Um, I called Lee, and I told him what had happened. And his response was to say, don't make yourself too attractive to them. (laughs) 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 I mean, you asked for it, yeah. Yeah, I did. I did ask for it. But for me, what happened was I was filled with such a sense of universal love and interconnectedness. Uh, My friends, even when I called to tell them about this experience, told me they could feel the love coming through the phone line. 
um, there was just such such a beautiful, overwhelming feeling of we are all connected that uh, it was transformative in that way for me. And I'd had lots of visitations from the angelic realm, you know, throughout my life, but this was the first conscious ET experience that I had. And did it have the same flavor as the angelic experiences? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we're all frequency specific. So, I mean, I, I can't imagine, for instance, ever being abducted that I just don't see that happening to me. Well, I've got some, yeah, so I'll tell the story in the next one, but I've had some scary stories. I've had <laughs> one scary event. Oh, my God, it was, it, but, and that one is even interwoven with this, you know, mystical aspect of it. It just, it plays out like a fable in, in a lot of ways. So, um, you know, so I have not had the sort of universal love experience, but I've talked to a lot of people who have, and um, and I trust them. So in a way, I would love it, but I don't need it in the sense that, uh like I, you know, like I, I trust the stories people are sharing. Right, right. I think everybody's. Well, I, I think each of our lives is an individual kind of version of Slumdog Millionaire. Um, if you have seen the movie, you know, you know this young guy is on a game show trying to win a million dollars, and there are these seemingly random questions, but each one of them has to do with some specific horrific experience or most mostly horrific experiences that happened in his life. And he gets the right answer all the time and becomes a winner. And I, I personally feel that that's what our lives are at the end of the day. You know, the highs and the lows are providing this, um, the thread as we weave together this lifetime that that we're here for um which is really about learning uh and growing and we're tying what could seem to be random events are all tied together in some way agreed agreed Hey, we are uh, just at about the hour mark a little bit over an hour we've been talking and this seems like a perfect spot to to end part one and then we can jump to part two which will be on my series and uh and then people can with people can tune into this uh two days from now on wednesday how's that sound sounds great good good thank you so much this has been a delight and we can jump right into part two absolutely great great thank you so much mm -hmm.